If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Well, it's a surprise having me here today, isn't it? We've got a special. It's very exciting. But before that, I need to tell you that I've done something incredibly stupid. So my latest idea to not eat chocolate was to put it in the car boot so that I would have to go outside to get the chocolate and therefore would never want to do that way. It didn't work. But anyway, it was a good idea. I've just realised my car has gone in for a service. And so there's two things with this. First one is when they open the boot, uh, well, it's going to be quite embarrassing. And secondly, I need some chocolate and I really can't get it. So that was not the best idea I've ever had. But what is the best idea I've ever had is getting Kate Moss on. Yes, This is a special all about the wonderful author, Kate Moss. Her books have sold not in the millions, but in the multi-millions. It's incredible. I mean, she's written the series that started with uh, Labyrinth. Then she went on to do the series um, Burning Chambers. She's written books. She's written plays, essays, non-fiction, all sorts of things. And when I heard about her latest book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, as a non-fiction book, all about women... Through the ages, incredible women, I was sold. I was like, yes, I'm in for this. I need to read this book and I need to talk to Kate. So let me read you the blurb of this particular book. So here we go. Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries is a detective story and a celebration of unheard and underheard women's history. Within these pages, you'll meet nearly 1,000 women whose names deserve to be better known. From the mothers of invention and the trailblazing women at the bar, warrior queens and pirate commanders, the women who dedicated their lives to the natural world or to medicine, those women of courage who resisted and fought for what they believed, to the unsung heroes of stage, screen and stadium. It is global, travelling the world and spanning all periods of time. It is also an intensely moving detective story of the author's own family history as Kate Moss pieces together the forgotten life of her great-grandmother, Lily Watson, a famous and highly successful novelist in her day who has all but disappeared from the record. It's an incredible book. It's one that you read bit by bit, you know? You just sit there and you just think, my goodness, these things that... These amazing things that women went through, these awful things that happened to women, just 
just wow. But this is a special, so we're not going to have any more of me waffling. We're just going to sit back and talk to Kate now. So Kate Moss, whose latest wonderful book is Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Oh, well, you have published, you've published 10 plus fiction, you've written non-fiction plays in 40 countries, translated into 38 languages. I have to say, why this book and why now? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a great question. And when you say all those things, it's, you know, I'm older than I look on Zoom, at least. (laughs) In the real world, maybe not so much. So, you know, it's a a long time of being, you know, a professional person involved in the world of books and and all of this. But actually, this came about, um, in a way, thanks to all of you listening. Um, It was the lockdown of January 2021, uh, which I think for many of us in the UK particularly was the hardest lockdown Mm. um, because we didn't know what was going to happen. It seemed endless. It was January, it was cold and it was wet. And, you know, people were trying to homeschool their children and I'm a full-time carer. um, And it just felt like, you know, what, what can we do to cheer ourselves up? And I was having a novel published and I really like having a book out because I like going to meet readers. I like being out and about um, in a bookshop on a high street and nipping into Tesco's and signing a few copies. You know, I I enjoy all that public side of being um, an author. And of course, none of that could happen. I never actually saw that novel in a bookshop um, in hardback because of course the bookshops were all shut and, you know, all of those things. So I just thought, well, I'm gonna ask a few friends um, who are writers mostly, if they could just give me one woman from history that they thought should be better known or they wanted to celebrate. Really very simple. So um, I asked Lee Child, you know, the most successful thriller writer in the world. And Lee said, you know, Kate, I'd recommend all the women of the Special Operations Executive from the Second World War, all of those brave women that went into France and Germany and and Poland and all of these things. Uh, I asked uh, the children's writer and and Bond follow-on, Anthony Horowitz, And he said, oh, well, Kate, I would choose Lascarina Bubalino. And I said, I've never heard of her. And he said, oh, well, she was um, the heroine in the 19th century of the Greek Wars of Independence. And there's this huge statue to her at Spetses looking out over the harbour. And she's the only woman to have ever been an admiral in the Russian Navy. And I thought, well, she sounds fantastic. Um, I asked Professor Kate Williams, who many of uh, your listeners will have recognised on all the royal coverage over the last month, uh, she's the royal correspondent at CNN. Um, and she said, oh, I, um, I'm i going to recommend a woman called Murasaki Shikabu. And I said, who's she? Or probably Shikibu, um, I imagine it's pronounced. And she said, oh, well, she is the woman who is considered to have written the world's first novel. And so out of that, I just thought, you know, I'm going to ask everybody. So I just, it's never happened to me before, Philippa, and will never happen since that I suddenly... I'm trending on Twitter, not for being <laughs> the right Kate Moss, as it were. Um, and I screenshot that screenshot that one. So I then sent it out. I just put a tweet out um, and said the same question. And within days, I had thousands of suggestions from women and men from all over the world. And some people were saying, like a young woman in China, saying, "Have you heard of the Chinese poet Ding Ling?" I hadn't. Um, a woman in Saudi Arabia telling me about the amazing uh, Egyptian woman Huda Shahari, 
who was the woman who came back from the International Women's Suffrage Conference in 1923 and took her veil off at Cairo Station. Now, you know, we're, we're in these times again. Mm. Um, and other people, like a lovely young man from Belfast, saying, I'd like to recommend my granny. And I found it really moving because, you know, what it made me feel was my instinct is that most normal people, by which I mean people who don't want to, you know, wreck the country or rule the government or, you know, create wars or whatever, want to build up rather than pull down. And most people look for points of connection. And history is about all of us, not just the kings and the queens. It's about every single one of us, all of our grannies and our sisters and our friends and the person who lives down the road. And I just thought, you know, I think there's a book in this. I don't want to leave the company of these amazing women. So there's nearly a thousand women mentioned in the book. And it's my own detective story. <laughs> and I, I love the title and the women that you talk about in the book, because as, as the book says, it's not just the loud ones, the ones that we might have heard about or come to mind more easily. Quiet, quiet people can be powerful too, incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think this is so important, um, the idea of the quiet revolutionaries. So my, I'm a carer, full-time carer for my mother-in-law, Granny Rosie. She lives with us. She's nearly 92. She's in a wheelchair now, um, was an incredibly fit and active person all of her life. But what does she do now? She knits tiny little figures um, in wool, obviously, um, choir boys and girls, Father Christmas is on skis, um, Harvest Festival, Maypole dancing. And she gives them all to the shop in our hometown of Chichester, uh, which is for the children's hospice. So for children who have life-limiting uh, illnesses. And obviously that's, uh, you know, an incredibly important and very painful area to work in. And she has, over the past five or six years, raised thousands of pounds for the children's hospice. There's no fanfare about it, but that's a quiet revolutionary. Someone who makes the world better just by the things they do. And I'm a huge believer in that. It's very easy in the book, of course, to talk about the great queens of, of uh, history, to talk about the women who changed the face of science, um, the women who changed the face of medicine, the women who changed the face of the law. And they are they, they've made a difference to all of our lives. Every woman owes many, many things to every, all these women in the book. But also the person in your street who does lots for other people. She's changing the world too. And that's what I wanted to say in the book, that women have always been there. Um, the reason that we don't know is because history is written mostly by men in all male institutions. And they just didn't think what women were doing mattered. But we all know that's not true and that we were always there. And so the quiet revolutionaries are as important in my book as the people that we know. Mm. But Kate, using that example you've, you've given us, it's not just as well those who are quiet, it's those who are dealing with whatever situation they're in with their life and making something positive of it. It's not just being handed an opportunity on a plate, but overcoming. That's mm. right, because we, it's really important. You know, I'm in my 60s now. And um, have, you know, have, have learnt a few things and failed to learn other things along the way, like you do. Um, but what I would say is that it's, it's, it's crucially important for women to know their history and to know the people in whose footsteps we walk. Because 
many young people don't realise that in living memory in the UK, if you got married, you had to give up your job. And in the 1950s, if you wanted to go and buy a dishwasher, which incidentally was invented by an American woman in the 1890s, Josephine Cochran, who had clearly had quite enough and went out to a shed in the back of her garden in Chicago and invented the first dishwashing machine, um, patented in 1893. Um, but if we don't, you know, in the 1950s, if a woman wanted to buy a dishwasher, she had to have her husband's approval. And if she wanted contraception, she had to have a husband's approval. You know, so these things are living memory uh, for many people alive and not for others. And so that thing of understanding, as you say, that things don't just get given. You have to fight for them mm. in the quiet way or the very um, obvious way. Um, you know, pe most people will have heard of Rosa Parks, who was the woman who just one day uh, decided she was not going to get up on the bus in Alabama in the 1950s and give a white person her seat. And, you know, lots of times afterwards, she said, um, you know, people said I was tired and that's why I didn't get up. And she said, I wasn't, I was tired of having to give in. Mm. But in fact, there were many women, Paulie Murray, um, Irene Morgan, Claudette Colvin, who had done that before her. And that's the other part of the story, that sometimes when women do appear in history, they're presented as outlandish or exceptional. So yeah, women and men in the world, yeah, we know that. Women basically sit around doing nothing, but every now and again, there's one exceptional woman. And that was also part of the book saying, for every one Rosa Parks, there's 10 that were there too. Um, and that's important that in the past, women had as much agency as men sometimes, and then they lost it. But we need to know our history because that's how we protect things. And we're recording this in a time where we are seeing an enormous rollback of women's rights in many ways that I would not have thought possible, uh, not least of all in the area of bodily autonomy and the idea that a woman has no right over her own body. And it's not to do with what your faith is or your conscience says, it's the idea that a whole group of people are told that it, your body is not yours. And that's who would have thought that in 2022 we'd be back there. So that's why I want mums to give this book to their sons. I want dads to give it to their sisters. I want friends to give it to each other. This is a book for all men and women and girls and boys who just want to know that women also made the world. You know, we were always there. There's a line in the Hamilton musical, History Has Its Eyes on You. Yes. And I really <laughs> felt that while reading your book, that it's, it, yes, we look at those that came before us, but also history has its eyes on us and what we do now for others to look at in the future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's about when you were asked to step up, if you were asked to step up, did you? Mm. You know, I'm an old-fashioned idealist. I was brought up by my parents. You know, I grew up in uh, where I live now, in Chichester, in Sussex, in the 60s and the 70s. And my parents' house was always filled with people stuffing envelopes, printing leaflets, arranging the church fate. Um, but I grew up in that environment where, where my parents simply believed that if you lived in a community, then you gave something back to it. Now, we all know that politicians spout off about this, but none of them... Um, of the current lot, possibly, you could say, really live anywhere properly with their neighbours in that kind of way. But that's what it's about. It's about standing shoulder to shoulder with other people. If you see someone who needs a bit of support, you 
you reach out your hand. It sounds very idealistic, but I genuinely think the world is a happier place. Um, and I believe that women and men work together really, really well. You know, this is not about saying, let's not think about all the brilliant men in history. It's saying, let's put the women back. It's like the wonderful um, Shirley Chisholm, who was the first uh, black woman uh, to, to run for the Senate, and she was very important in American politics. She said, you know, if they, there isn't a place for you at the table, bring your own folding chair. And I think that's, you know, good... You know, a good, good lesson to live by. And what's been really funny with the book, Warrior Crees Quiet Revolution, I've only just got my first copy. And I put it on the table for Granny Rosie. Uh, Granny Rosie always sits at one end of the table. I'm always at the other. Um, and, you know, I must say, you know, at the end of the day, she has her gin and tonic. I have a glass of wine and we have a bit of a catch up and a chat. <laughs> and um, she, <laughs> what was really adorable, she started reading the book and she kept saying, did you know that? And then we'd launch into something. In the end, they said, Rosie, you know, I wrote that book. She went, oh, yes, of course you did. But she was like, she went between being thrilled and delighted by some of the funny stories to being really furious about mm. other stories. And a lot of the time, just like, well, I never knew that. And that's, that's the point. This book is a celebration. Um, but also, if it's a little bit of a call to arms for everybody to know that the, every tiny thing any of us does for the good makes a difference. All of us. In the, in the book, as well as these very significant stories, there are lots of quotes running through it that I think make it easy to read and pick up and look at. So whether you're looking for a book that you sit down and just inhale the whole experience or you just want to read a little bit as you go on, I think it's a very sort of understanding book. It takes you alongside. Thank you. That was really deliberate because I say there's more, you know, pretty much a thousand women mentioned in the book. But some of them have got quite long biographies, some just a few sentences. And others, as you say, are just there with a quotation. Because, again, I think it's that idea that you learn from everybody. Um, and we all know that a really wonderful, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood, for example, it's a brilliant phrase. A word after a word after a word is power. You know, nobody said it better than that. So you don't need to come up with your own. Um, you need to um, sort of, you know, take the wisdom of all these incredible women throughout the world. But I, I did write it absolutely so that it's a book that can be dipped into. Um, it's not like reading one of my novels where you do sit down and you go, oh, what's happening next? What's happening next? You know, um, with this, it's very much you can dip in and out. And there are 10 chapters divided into the writers, the women of faith, the women of courage, the women of uh, conservation and conviction uh, a woman's place is at the bar is actually about the law um, a woman's place is in the house is actually about voting in parliament um, so I did it deliberately and then running between that is my own detective story into my own hidden woman mm. from history and that was really important because one of the things a lot of people did during lockdown is they did become more interested in their own family history and what I hope everybody listening can here is that I, I genuinely believe that history is all of us. Um, it's not just the big stories. It's all of our own, as it were, small personal histories um, are just as important, you know, just as important. And so I had that experience during lockdown of walking in the footsteps of my own great grandmother, um, a woman I never knew but came to love uh, through the course of writing the book. Were there any of the other women in the book that have particularly stayed with you that you can't sort of switch off from thinking about? There are. There are. Um, 
I think the thing that I find most moving and sometimes upsetting is that to have really learned, you know, this book, the question at the heart of this book is what is history? Who gets to decide? Mm. And it's the extraordinary women who did incredible things. And many of them were really famous in their own day. But then because nobody looked after their legacy, they vanished. So, for example, more people know her now. When I was asking people to nominate one of the, you know, Claire Balding, the wonderful uh, sports um, specialist and commentator, she said, oh, Kate, I'd choose Lily Parr. Now, Lily Parr is, was possibly now, the most famous female British footballer there's ever been. She's the only female footballer who has a statue. And it was a really salutary story that during the First World War, there were all the munitions factories where women were working in the factories uh, to support the war effort. Many of them had football teams. And of course, they were female teams. And there were, you know, there was a league like there is today. And the most famous uh, one was Dick Carr Ladies. And Lily Parr played um, for, for that team. And on the Boxing Day match of 1918, there was a live crowd of 48,000 people. Women's football was the biggest sport in the country. When the men came back, the FA decided they wanted to kill the women's game. So it wasn't that women didn't play football and it wasn't that nobody was interested. They actively set about to destroy it by saying uh, none of these women's teams are allowed to play on FA grounds. So it was stories like that that I found really upsetting. Because in a way, if you think it's just that people didn't think women mattered, that would be bad enough. Um, Or that women had never really wanted to do those things, so that's why there weren't any opportunities. That's kind of, you think, well, it's, you know, maybe women didn't do that. But when you learn that, you know, you kind of, as we're seeing now in, for example, in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. um, when you come face to face with people who genuinely hate women or genuinely believe that women should not have the same opportunities, that kind of brings you up short. Because I think you often just think, well, it's just how things fall out. But every now and again, it's deliberate to make sure that women can't have an education or can't, you know, whatever it is. So Lily Parr stuck with me. Um, I am happily married. (laughs) Met my um, husband at school when we were 15. Um, So this is not something that I have had to benefit from. But Caroline Norton, she... Every single woman in this, in this country who needs to, a divorce or to be separated from a person who is not treating her or children well owes a debt Caroline Norton, who was married to a vile man. Um, he was taken to court by her. He lost the case, but he still refused to divorce her. He was clearly violent. He was um, a, you know, an adulterer, all of these kind of things. And not only did he refuse to give her a divorce, but he refused to let her see her own children and refused and took all the earnings from her writing. And she, unlike every other Victorian woman who was basically the property of their husband, it's a, it's a practice called couverture, which means that when a woman married, everything belonged to the husband, including the children and her. She just refused to accept it. And she kept battling and battling and battling and battling. And several of the major acts that impacted women's lives, not least of all the Married Women's Property Act in 1870, um, we owe to her. And um, now she's not a household name and probably people listening are going, oh, my God, you know, an act of 1870. But 
every single one of us will know a woman who is needed to get out of a marriage that is toxic. Without that act, none of it would have happened. So, you know, those things, and you just think, what about the courage of that? Just keeping going, being criticised in the paper, having your children kept from you. But she knew that she couldn't accept this. And she, you know, so I, you know, I, I still, even thinking about it, it makes me well up. I think, oh, there's so many incredible women who, you know, we live the lives we've got because of them. But that's so interesting because for a part of my work, I had to take various trusts and taxation exams. And that act was something that we had to learn. Oh, did and you? Yeah. Would be quoted. So to know the link, you know, there's so much yeah. more. Uh, yeah. that, that's amazing. And also women having to struggle to be allowed to be doctors to other women. You know, we all understand that, don't we? It's kind of straightforward. You know, the, the first woman doctor, although they'd be called physician, is considered to be Agnodice in the 4th century BCE in Athens. Um, and there was a catch-22 that uh, men weren't allowed to lay hands on women, but women weren't allowed to be doctors. So that's a bit of a no-win situation for women, isn't it? Um, and she started to treat uh, patients, and she became very popular, um, dressed, disguised as a man, and then... Her rivals essentially said, we don't like this. You know, they're getting more custom than we are. So accused her of inappropriate behaviour. So she had to lift up her clothes to prove she was a woman. And she lost the case, but the rule changing women physicians in Athens was changed because obviously it's, you know, one of those things. But in 1901, in the UK census of 1901, this shows you what women were allowed to do in Victorian times. And in many ways, Victorian women were much more restrained and constrained than women had been in earlier centuries. And there were 12,000 women teachers in 1901, 1,740,800 servants, women servants, and 12 <laughs> women doctors. Gosh, I just... Now there are more women doctors than men. So, so that's the other thing. You've got to, when you look at these, it, you know, not everybody wants to be a doctor. Um, not, you know, many women would like to be homemakers and, do, and that's great. The point is that women get to choose. Nothing's better or worse. It's just that women have the right to choose what they want to do. Uh, I've got a dear friend of mine who was one of the first p women to study veterinary science at university. Right. And she always talks about how the lecturers refused to acknowledge them. They only referred to gentlemen and wouldn't look yes. at the women in the audience. Uh, uh, just yeah. you know, in yeah. incredible. But you know time. what? I, I think the thing is that if you believe you're doing the right thing or you believe you've got a vocation, like my aunt was in the very first year of women being ordained as priests and she was in her 70s and she had waited her whole life to be a priest. She wasn't in Bristol, she was in Chelmsford, which was the second one. And the thing is that she just knew she was a priest. She had to wait for custom to catch up with her, but she did. And she was a quiet revolutionary, very patient, very gentle, perfect in that. And it's like your friend, you know, she wanted to be a vet. So she, had, she knew that she might have to put up with some stuff. Um, and we can see this right at the moment, can't we, with those extraordinary brave women and girls and the, their brothers and husbands and friends who are supporting them in Iran. You know, they, we, the death toll is rising every day there, but there is a movement of people saying, I can't, I can't be silent anymore. So, you know, it's that for me, that I'm just in awe of what some people do 
Um, but it comes back to also the quiet revolutionaries, like your friends sitting in the lecture hall and the many, many women who've sat in lecture halls trying to become doctors or lawyers and had, you know, the very famous thing in Edinburgh was the Surgeons Hall riot when the Edinburgh Seven, when women were trying to take uh, their uh, medical exams and the male students, alongside some of the male tutors, sabotaged the exam by setting animals loose and throwing them mud at them as they walked into the hall. Um, and they misjudged it because the public mood when they saw that was, well, if you're behaving like this, then we think we should support the women. And it started to change. But those women only got their degrees awarded posthumously a couple of years ago. hundred, more than a hundred years later. <laughs> From that quite serious note to a rather more flippant note I'm going Excellent. to give you some I quick like fire questions now Go on then. so your first quick fire question women's history or women's future oh that's a lovely question um you can't separate them without knowing the past we don't know where we're going <laughs> okay the next one day before publication or day after publication oh day before because you are so full of hope <laughs> you know, pub I love being published, but, um, you know, always your your vision and your dream, you know, the day before you're going to be brilliant. Everything you say is going to be fab. Everybody's going to love it. And then, of course, reality isn't always doesn't always quite match up to the dream. <laughs> oh, book title or book cover? Oh, God, whatever, whatever I say, I'm going to regret. But I think <laughs> actually um, the cover, because I think. People have a visual um, in a bookshop. Yeah. Your eye is caught by a colour or an image. And when you get there, you see it. So although the title is absolutely fundamental and very important to me and a good title can make a book and a bad one can make it really hard to find, I think that this whole, it's a cliche because it's true about, you know, the, the jacket, that it's quite often, particularly in a busy railway station, I'm always running out of something to read and always at Waterloo or Victoria with the, the two minutes to go before the train goes. And, I, you know, I'm always buying a paperback from those tables at the front. And it's, it, it's that. I think that looks like the sort of book I'm going to read. Bam. That's true. And that's a very diplomatic way of actually providing both answers. Obviously, I am a Libran. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I am a Libran. <laughs> Lots of edits or no edits? Lots. <laughs> and uh, the final quickfire question. You're on a train with no printed book to read. Would you access an audiobook or an e-book? E-book. Mm. Thank you very much. So now I'd like to talk about some of your other books as well, because obviously we've got people who will immediately grab a copy of Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. But also we've got those who are more fiction fans and may not have even started any of your books and where to start. And um, you may correct me on this, but I'm particularly keen to talk to you about the Burning Chambers series, because one of your books I've already reviewed on the podcast, The Black Mountain, which is a quick reads book. And I just thought personally, I thought it was an amazing way to step into the series. But what, what would you agree or disagree with? Oh, that? that's lovely to hear, Philippa. Yes, because um, I write big, chunky historical fiction and I write gothic slash ghost stories. And what I know is from all of my years going out to bookshops and meeting readers is that for some readers my big historicals are a bit off-putting they're um 
they're interested in the story and the subject matter, but they are long and they are detailed. Um, and you've got to have a jolly long holiday um, <laughs> to have enough time to get into it. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, now, the quick reads, they are, it's part of a campaign, which is for adults who love great stories, but for whatever reason have maybe not been able to do much reading in their lives since they left school. They might even have slightly fallen through the cracks. And however clever and brilliant they are, they might actually not have a natural affinity with reading itself. Um, and the quick reads acknowledge that there were quite a lot of adults who needed to get back into reading and wanted to get back into reading, but it was all just a bit much. And so this system was set up, the quick reads, where um, well-known authors, as they describe us, um, write a short novel, so 15,000 words, as opposed to one of my big historicals is 110,000 words. And so it's very significantly different. And it's very much aimed at whetting somebody's appetite. For, you know. so, the Black, so my series, which is actually now called The Joubert Family Chronicles, which is The Burning Chambers, uh, The City of Tears, the new one will be out next year called The Ghost Ship. Um, and then the fourth one, uh, title as yet unrevealed, because not yet <laughs> chosen. Um, uh, they, you know, they are that big story, 300 years of history, Romeo and Juliet story, Catholic girl, Protestant boy, and their family and descendants. But the new one that I'm working on at the moment, The Ghost Ship, is set partly in France, of course, and partly they finally arrive in South Africa. But the bulk of it is set around the Canary Islands, which were... They're, I love the Canary Islands. You know, I know they're not the most fashionable place sometimes, but we've always gone on holidays to Tenerife and um, Gran Canaria and really enjoyed being there. An incredible history of being a trading port. And in the 16th and 17th, well, particularly the 17th century, um, the ships going from Europe to the Far East uh, or, you know, to the Americas often stopped in the Canary Islands. So with the quick read, I thought, you know, I discovered this bit of history about the extraordinary destruction of the main port in northern Tenerife um, in 1706. And it's a brilliant piece of history, but I couldn't, couldn't in any way, I tried, could not get it in to my novel. And then I was asked to write a quick read and I thought, oh, brilliant. <laughs> Because it's too, it's too late for when my people are there in Tenerife. But then I thought, well, this is great because I can write about like Araccio um, existing. And then now I can write that moment when the town disappeared. And it's that, it's like a Pompeii story. You know, mm. it was the most prosperous part. And then it was destroyed in a matter of hours when the volcano blew. And, you know, and I, and I loved that bit of history. And um, so I'm really glad that you feel that that actually linked to the Joubert Family Chronicles, Burning Chambers, City of Tears, because that's precisely what my aim was, that it might be a, the gateway drug into, <laughs> into yeah. some of the bigger, <laughs> some of the longer novels. And I think you're right, because sometimes I look at historical fiction and think, oh, it's not for me. But yeah, yes, your books are about places, but they're about people. And that's what the Black Mountain, the quick read book showed to me that actually, you know, I, I can I can jump in. I will be safe there. And it's just these these incredible stories about people. And I wanted to keep turning the pages. And oh, finding that's out what so happened. great to hear. And that was I've had some lovely messages from readers um, about the Black Mountain. And I, and I think the thing is that often with historical fiction, people think that it's 
it's about the past, but this is what we're talking about today, that I believe that if you're standing with somebody you care about and they are being threatened by a man with a sword or a soldier with a gun, that your heart would leap in fear and your spirit in terms of determination to protect the person you loved. I think that emotion is the same in 2022, mm. in 1902, in 1706, in 1572. I don't think the human heart changes so very much. Circumstances change and expectations and the way the world works and all of this kind of thing. But actually, our emotions are their emotions. And that's the trick with historical fiction and with my gothic fiction, which is all set mostly in the past, um, is the idea of, do you, the reader, feel you're standing in that person's shoes? Are you feeling the fear that they're feeling when they hear the hammering on the door? Or you see that the lava is coming down the mountain? Um, and that's my job, to make you feel you're there. Not like, OK, I'm Philippa now in the 21st century and she was Anna in the 18th century, but... I know how she feels. Mm. Yes, and that's where the, the, the people and, and the, the, the passion, the emotion comes into it. So if somebody um, starts with the Black Mountain and obviously they're going to love it, where do they go next? Do they go to the Burning Chambers or do they wait for the ghost ship to come out? What, well, what I tell you what, my publishers will obviously um, be furious because I should say <laughs> buy the book that's out now and then the one that's coming out. But if people who are listening are looking to get back into a bit of reading a fiction, um, and you do enjoy The Black Mountain, I would suggest going to one of my other shorter novels next. For example, The Winter Ghosts, which is wow. a love story set partly in uh, the, the 1930s and, uh, and, uh, and 20s with a man who his brother has been killed in the Great War and he can't get over it. And it, He's a man who is being told, you've got no right to feel upset. You've got to feel sorry for all the women who've lost their husbands and um, all of these things. And so it, whereas all my historical fiction has women unheard and underheard stories at the heart of it, I'm also interested in the men who are not allowed to be themselves, the gentle men who didn't want to be the person marauding through the undergrowth. And so Freddie, the character in that book, he just is broken by the death of his brother and he's not allowed to. He's, he's not being allowed to grieve. Um, and, of course, he discovers, because it is a ghost story and he kind of is back in, he finds himself back in time, um, that by saving somebody else, he can save himself. So it's a, it's a very, it, you know, it's a haunting love story. And I know from my readers that a lot of people love that book the best. So I, I would go there next. <laughs> And then maybe start with the Burning Chambers and the City of Tears, which is a big family saga. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm going to be looking the winter ghost up <laughs> immediately. And this is the time of year as well where we all like. Perfect. Uh, it is. Exactly. So, exactly. so that's just great. I'm just interested if you could go back in time to when you were writing your first book. Is there anything that you would whisper in your ear? I could never have. Not my first book. That's the key that I became an overnight success at the age of 45. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody says, oh, your first book, that was amazing. Labyrinth, it sold millions of copies all over the world. It was number one all over the world. In this country in 2006, it was number one for six months. So I had my own Richard Osman moment. Um, 
which of course I don't resent any of his success. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, no, it's, it, you know, it's wonderful when that happens to you. And, um, but I'd written two nonfiction and two fiction before that. And I think what I learned to do with, with my first big novel, which was my fifth book, Labyrinth, was I stopped thinking about writing it and I just started to think about feeling it. And so I listened to my own writing voice. So that sounds a little bit airy-fairy, but what I mean by that is, and everybody who's listening will understand, that sometimes you read a book and you think, this person's just noticed that there are lots of books, psychological thrillers mm -hmm. with a woman who, you know, so they've written one as well. But you can see that they're kind of writing from the outside looking in. They don't yeah. really feel the book. The characters aren't really coming to life. And what I did with Labyrinth was, you know, we went to a place called Carcassonne and in the southwest of France, and I fell in love with that. And so I started to listen to what I always call the whispering in the landscape. And I realised this was a place I could write about. And with the burning chambers and the city of tears, it's the same. Writing that story in Carcassonne, writing that story in Paris, and then in the city of tears in Amsterdam, realising that I could tell a story set there. And once I understood that for me it's about place um, rather than choosing an idea. You know, so I'm emotion driven, not intellectually driven, if you like. You know, what I want is people to feel what the characters are feeling and I want people to cry and laugh and think that the story matters just for the time they're reading it. So I would say to my, not, you know, not my young self, because I was 45, um, but just believe in yourself. There was no way of predicting that that would happen, um, that it would be that book that everybody read. Um, and it actually published on the 7th of July 2005, which was the day all the bombings happened in London. So its beginning was, oh, and obviously a God. book publication doesn't matter at all in the face mm. of that human yeah. loss and distress and, and, and the shock of all of that. Um, but then the book was still out there because booksellers were going, read this book. And I think that is the other thing that people love about historical fiction. It, they deal, it deals with big emotions, but with the benefit of hindsight. And I think particularly at the moment when things are, do feel very challenging in the world for many of us, I think, um, it seems that the world's all gone a bit crazy and ugly, uh, maybe, uh, not, not supportive and not um, pleasant in many ways. The language is, is horrible and, you know, combative. Um, I think sometimes with historical fiction, you deal with all those big emotions, but it's not happening now. And we all need mm -hmm. to process all these big emotions we're feeling, but not in the present day. It's quite hard. So that's the other thing I would just say, you know, believe that people kept saying to me, oh, people don't really like historical fiction. It's like, OK, but that's the book I'm writing. So you've got to believe in yourself. And uh, well, we certainly believe in you because your books are amazing. I can't wait to read Winter Ghost. I, I'm already looking forward to that. And I thoroughly recommend your latest book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. Kate Moss, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Well, wasn't that nice? I, I just hope you enjoyed the chat as much as I did. And there's some great books to look at. I'm definitely going to go and acquire a copy of Winter Ghost. But I just what a nice person and uh, just a whole range of books for us to jump into. But yes, yeah, so that's Kate Moss, whose latest one is Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. And that is your special for today. I'll see you again on Monday.
Look after yourselves now. Take care. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.